The following sermon was delivered on November 29, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled, Who Should Lead Worship? on 1 Timothy 2.8. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, we all recognize how in the past years there's been a gender confusion that uh, preceded the current gender confusion, and that is gender roles, where in our denomination we've had to deal with things such as women in combat, where now when you, you watch a movie, increasingly the, the, the women are the strong figures, and they're the ones that are fighting the battles and, and saving lives. I think the most ludicrous example of this happened yesterday. The number one news announcement on ESPN was Vanderbilt had the first female kicker. And this was big news. They put her in a uniform, put her out there. It was a terrible kick. I saw the film. And she marched off the field. But this is, of course, ESPN. This is where things are today. This is the confusion. Now, the church... Wanting to be, in some ways, relevant, concerned about the world and wanting to reach people around us as well, the church also is greatly confused on gender roles. Now, in our own denominations at this point, it's not in terms of the role of ordination, at least particularly with respect to uh, eldership, uh, but it is greatly confused today with respect to what women do in the worship of the church. And so even now in our own presbytery, we have had those defend that women may read scripture and lead in prayer. And some of our churches actually distribute communion at the Lord's Supper. Now, is this merely a matter of of tradition? And we've outgrown that tradition. We need to get with it. We live now in the 21st century. Or is there something more basic at work here? What I want to show you from 1 Timothy 2.8, that there's something very basic at work here. Why we do what we do. It's important for you young people to understand this, because if we don't regularly explain to you why we do what we do, then I can see why you would think, well, this is just their tradition. That's how they did it. But we're a different generation. Now, we want you to understand uh, why we do what we do with respect to who participates in a leadership role in corporate worship. That's what Paul is addressing now in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2. So remember in uh, chapter 1, after laying down his credentials and the first issue that Paul wants Timothy to address is the matter of false teachers, exposing them, setting forth what the the glory of teaching is, and, and that is love of God and our neighbor from a... A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he lays it out. He then shows the danger of false teaching and the necessity of discipline in the church. So that's particularly the chapter on teaching. And remember, I said to you when we began, we're doing Timothy because this lays the foundation for a church. And here we are as a mission church. So now in chapters 2 and 3, Paul is laying out the life of the church in her worship and her structure. Now, in the first seven verses, which we examined last week, 
Paul showed us the mind of Christ for the church that as we're praying, one of the things we must always have in mind is the lost because God cares about the lost and God establishes his church for the gathering of the lost. And Paul confirmed that then by his own testimony that he was appointed as an apostle to teach truth to the Gentiles. Uh, showing that God's kingdom now goes to the end of the earth from the rising to the setting of the sun. But we noticed also in Paul's list that I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. He puts preacher first because Paul is also preparing for the transition. That the office of preacher trumps in its effect. Now, for Paul, the office of apostle, because the preacher is the office that will continue until Christ returns. So having laid this foundation about the the focus of the church, but doing so, as we noted last week, particularly in the context of corporate worship, the church's prayers, particularly the church's prayers in corporate worship and then the prayer meeting. He moves now and to who should be leading those prayers, particularly in the corporate worship of the church. And then what are the God-appointed roles for women in the life of the church? So tonight, by God's grace, we will seek to answer this first question from verse 8. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And here I want to show you that Christ has ordained that only qualified and appointed men should lead worship. Christ has ordained that only qualified and appointed men should lead corporate worship. And we divide the text in two simple ways, that Christ appoints men to lead worship, Christ appoints qualified men to lead worship. Well, the first half of the verse, Christ appoints men to lead worship Likewise, or or therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Let's work backward through this first half of the verse. And in the first place, notice uh, what is this work uh, that Paul is addressing? What is the prayer that Paul has here in mind? And obviously, because it's connected to leadership, Paul is talking about prayer in corporate worship. It's clear from the context where he deals with how the church gathers to pray. It's clear from the later context when he speaks with respect to women's roles in worship, with respect to teaching and authority. So Paul is talking here particularly about the corporate worship of the church. In fact, the word prayer itself helps us here. For this, as I mentioned last week, is the broadest term in Scripture uh, for prayer, and it can refer to the whole of corporate worship. That's why that majestic... um, Liturgical manual by Cramer is called the Book of Common Prayer. And it was the book for the prayers and the worship of the church. But it also included the Psalms and the hymns. And so Paul is dealing here now with the corporate worship of the church. As we keep moving then to the left, you see he says that it is men who are to lead in prayer. Now, the word men here. It's not your common generic word like mankind could be male or female. No, this is the masculine form of the term. He's talking about the masculine gender of the human race. And that's also seen by the context, whereas in in verse 9 now he begins to address the role of women. 
So Paul is saying here that I want men to be those who are going to uh, lead in prayer in corporate worship. Now, it makes sense if you'll stop and think about what is happening when we pray. You have a responsibility when whoever is up here is leading in prayer, or whether we take a common prayer, you are to make that prayer your prayer. Uh, There's no more authoritative act under preaching and reading scripture uh, like prayer. William Perkins said that uh, the minister, uh, when he speaks to, to, as a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God, and then as a prophet prays to God on behalf of the people, requiring the same knowledge and authority uh, in offering prayers uh, that one should have in preaching a sermon. So he says this is an act of authority to lead prayer in corporate worship. He says, I want men to do that. But by inference, I want to show you that uh, because prayer does stand here for corporate worship, that in effect, Paul is talking about all the acts of corporate worship, particularly those that are now controverted. uh, In addition to prayer, reading of Scripture are distributing the elements at uh, the Lord's Supper. The reading of Scripture, Paul himself particularly tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 13, is to be done by office bearers. Until I come, verse 13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Interesting, this word, you'll see a publix and italics, but it, this Greek word that's used here implies most often public reading of Scripture. We see that where it's used again in Revelation uh, chapter 1, uh, where John says uh, in verse 3, or Christ says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. So we have a singular, the one who reads, obviously one person reading Scripture in worship, and rest of the congregation hearing those things that are being read. And so Paul makes clear here that uh, the reading of Scripture is to be done uh, by a man. We see this as well in the larger catechism. 156. Is the word of God to be read by all? Although all are not permitted to read the word publicly to the congregation, yet all sorts of people are bound to read it apart by themselves and with their families, to which end the Holy Scriptures are to be translated out of the original into vulgar languages. But notice that opening statement. Although all are not permitted to read the word publicly to the congregation. How did those early theologians understand this? In their directory of worship, and this same language has been carried over into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in America, reading of the word in the congregation being part of the public worship of God, wherein we acknowledge our dependence upon him and subjection to him, one means sanctified by him for edifying his people to be performed by the pastors and teachers. Howbeit, such as intend the ministry may occasionally both read the word and exercise their gift in preaching in the congregation, if allowed by the presbytery thereunto. And so I've just briefly seek to show you here that Paul is telling us that he wants men to be those who lead in public worship. 
But now go all the way to the beginning of the verse. I said we move from the middle to the left. And notice the nature of the commandment. Now remember my heading is that Christ uh, is the one who qualifies and appoints. Christ is the one then who appoints men to lead worship. Look at the exhortation as Paul gives it. Therefore, now he's relating this again to corporate worship. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray. Now, the every place also points out the fact that Paul is talking about the worship of the church. Wherever the church gathers for worship, Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, wherever it was, in every place, uh, Paul wants men to be those that lead in worship. Now, the particular form that he uses here, the first word, want, and then is followed by what in Greek is an infinitive, to pray. It's a very common form used by Paul. He uses it assuming the word want. You'll see it in italics in your English Bible. Likewise, I want women to, and there's your infinitive, adorn themselves. Later in chapter 5, verse 14, therefore I want Younger widows, too, get married. So what we have here clearly is an apostolic commandment. Exactly as if Paul had said, I command you, or as he often uses that word, I urge you to do this thing or that thing. Here it's a very serious commandment that the Apostle Paul is given. Now how am I getting from that to the fact that Christ is the one who's made this appointment? We'll go right back to... uh, Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostolic office, the apostles themselves were the God-inspired spokesmen and writers. And Christ, through them, delivered his final doctrines and commandments to the church. And so when Paul says, I want you to do A, B, and C, You understand, don't you, the authority that's behind that, that this is Christ saying, I want you to do A, B, and C. And in this, we are acknowledging, again, another very important truth that we confess, and that is that Christ is the head of the church. In that chapter on the church in the Westminster Confession of Faith, 25, uh, paragraph 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ, and all that is God. Now they were dealing in particularly in those days with uh, that particular error of the Pope claiming to be the head of the church, which is still a problem today. But you know today uh, the real problem is not the Pope for most evangelicals. It's the congregation. It's a pure democratic approach to what church life is all about. And so the functioning head of the church in so many cases is the congregation. And if the congregation thinks that we should have women doing this thing or that thing, then it must be okay. What we have here is an apostolic commandment. The elders are not the heads of the church. The presbytery is not the head of the church. The General Assembly is not the head of the church. The doctors of theology are not the head of the church. Christ alone is head of the church. And what that means practically is we do not invent laws and commandments. We interpret what Christ has given to us in Scripture 
And seek then to inculcate and teach those for the well-being of the church and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you have followed this first point. I hope you boys get this, that it's Christ who has said that he wants men to lead in worship. But then you'll notice it's not all men. See, this is not a matter of masochism. It's not a matter of uh, of male um, pride or something like that, chauvinism. No, there's something even more importantly going on here. It's not just men because of authority structure, but you'll notice in the second place, it's qualified men. Not all men. Not all of you men here tonight are in a position to be those who would lead in worship any more than any woman here tonight is a position to lead in worship. And so note what Paul writes in this commandment. I want men lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You see, if they're to be holy, if they're to be men without, noted to be without wrath and dissension, they had to have been examined. They had to have been approved. They had to have been set aside unto this task. So in the first place, with the word holy, he is saying, I want men to lift holy hands. Now, in the Bible, hands are often put as a figure of the speech for one's life and, and for his conduct. And we see this in, in the Psalms. And so basically, the, the holy hands is simply a reference to his outward conduct being holy. But think about the meaning of holy. We think about it in two ways. In the first place, it means set apart from something else. Here, these men are going to be men that Christ has set apart. They're holy in the task because he set them apart from all other men and women in the congregation. But for that to have happened, they must be, in the second place, set apart from sin. They must be those whose lives are an example to the flock... Those who can say like Paul, follow me as I follow Christ, not in perfection, but in humility, seeking to please and honor him. Now, before we go to the two particular traits, I want you to notice the statement here on posture. Paul says, I want men to lift, lift holy hands. So the hands are not merely here a figure of speech. Not merely the part put for the whole. Paul now is talking about how one conducts worship. One of the ways uh, that one leads God's people in worship. So in our call to worship, we uh, saw there in Psalm 63 uh, that we seek God uh, lifting our hands to him in prayer. Verse 4, I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. This morning, I was actually reading in my uh, reading through the Psalms, and I got to Psalm 141, and there we have this uh, remarkable thing on prayer. O oh Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call. May my prayer be counted as the incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Calvin wrote here that it was common, not only in all the Christian churches, but common throughout the world to lift hands in prayer. And then we see in Nehemiah, chapter 8, that it was something that the congregation themselves did. This is one example. 
Nehemiah 8, 5 and 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, Amen, Amen. Here's one of the reasons we say the corporate Amen. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, we see here clearly that the one who leads in worship may lift his hands in that way. And that's why when I do that prayer of adoration and invocation, I lift my hands. Zach's supposed to do that as well. He'll learn. Um, um, And yes, the leader should do that. But what we learn from Nehemiah, now put on your seatbelt. This will shock some of you. That as the congregation, we should do this. Not individualistically. Not somebody over here waving their hands during the hymn and somebody over here have their hands up during the prayer. No, because we're worshiping corporately. As long as we're physically able, we are to do everything in posture everyone else does. But there's clear biblical example as historical example, even in Reformed churches, of the congregation corporately lifting their hands in worship. This is something that I hope that we will institute here. We'll make that part of that opening prayer of adoration and invocation because it is biblical. It's not a sin not to do it. As long as one represents all, that's permissible. But it yet helps us. You see, the whole thing of lifting your hands in prayer is a symbol. In the first place, you are saying, I'm holding my soul up to God. You remember the parallel in Psalm 141, like the evening offering. I'm lifting my soul up to God as an offering. But our posture in prayer helps us. That's why we're trying to practice posture in the church, because it helps us to pray. It keeps our minds from wandering, and we want to engage the heart. These are not motions that we're going through. We want to engage your heart, all of us. God didn't make us disembodied souls, did he? We are people made in the image of God. We are people redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so posture is important. So establishing that, consider now the two distinguishing characteristics that Paul gives for the men who are to be holy men. They're to be without wrath and without dissension. In the first place, not to be fighters, not pugnacious, but no, take the opposite. As we look at the qualifications in a, in a couple of weeks of, of elders, they're to be kind and, and gentle, to be sympathetic and pastoral. The person who's the raging bull in the china cabinet, the one who is running roughshod over others in the congregation, he's not fit to lead in prayer. There'd be no sympathy between you and such a person for your ability to, to take his words and, and make them your words. And then dissension has to do with the one who's disputatious, who's always having to argue every single point, always wanting to get in the last word, always trying to to prove a a, a particular issue or point to those with whom he does not agree. Again, such a person is not fit. There will be animosities. There will be jealousies that he has uh, created. But how, how is it determined then that this man is holy So he'll be set aside as holy. He does not have wrath and dissension. Well, we see when we look at the uh, qualifications for the elder in the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 3, these are qualifications for the eldership. And so again, by Paul taking these two things that particularly would apply to pastoral sympathy and leading worship, we can see that what he's saying is 
that the man must be examined by the elders. He must be elected by the congregation. And then he is set aside by Christ to do this glorious work of leading the people of God in their worship. And so not only does Christ appoint men, he's appointing here qualified men to lead the congregation in their worship. So we see that Christ has ordained and appointed uh, men should lead worship. We've seen his appointment as head of the church. We've seen how a qualified man is recognized by church. The spirit of God's been at work in him. The people of God recognize that and elect him. Christ then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, through the elders, sets him aside to the matter of office. Now, what we say is that uh, uh, we go a bit beyond our fathers in this respect, that believing that ruling elders have an ordination very similar to that of teaching elders, that we encourage ruling elders as well to participate in the leading of prayer and reading of Scripture, and of course, by fencing the table, they're distributing the elements of the sacrament. And then, as I read, men under qualification of the session of the presbytery in order to test and develop their gifts uh, will do this as well on a regular basis. But you see, it's been appointed by Christ, the head of the church. Now, this brings us back to that thing I wrote about as we started, the regulative principle of worship. Now, in that article, I pointed out that the things that we do in worship must be the things that God reveals to us. But what we see here tonight is that there are other aspects of worship that Christ also, as the head of the church, has regulated. And it is prerogative to do so. And it is desperately dangerous to disobey him. But now I'll say, I hear the objection. Well, you know, if we don't get women more involved, if everything up front is male, we're not going to reach modern men. They're not used to these kind of distinctions. And I would simply answer that, and who is the wisest? You are God. Who has the heart for the lost? Who said, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost? Why does our Savior himself? Is he not wise enough to have ordered his church in every age, regardless of the culture, to be the fit instrument for reaching men and women with the gospel? I hear another objection as well. I trust not here tonight, but I don't know. And that is, that just ain't right. Maybe you're angry. Who is this guy? What is this? That is ancient stuff. We live the 21st century. A woman can do whatever a man does. Well, maybe physically she can. I won't argue that tonight. But does that mean, is it permissible? You don't want to hear that. If that is the case, you need to understand that you're fighting back now against the king of the church, not against Piper. This is Christ's ordinance. And if you're unwilling to bow to the king, what that probably means is you've not yet bowed the knee to him. You want to be your own authority. You want to go your own way. You... You don't want to have only one king 
in your life. Well, you're happy to have him as Savior. It'd be great if you didn't go to hell. But to have him as king of your life, that's not just this commandment. It's what we do in worship. You need to understand that all of these things are of our Savior. What's pleasing to him? What does he want? And if you find yourself wrestling or arguing with the headship of Christ, you need seriously to consider your relationship to him. For when you come to Christ, we bow the knee to the most beautiful and glorious king, altogether lovely and righteous and holy, but so majestic and powerful as well. So I urge you, if you've not done so, that even now, bow in your heart to King Jesus. Take him as your savior and take him as your Lord and say, whatever you command by your grace, I will do. I want you to understand the alternative is very dangerous. What happens to a church that introduces its innovations, men's innovations into worship? What happens to a church that refuses the mandate of Christ for who leads the church in worship? It is absolutely disastrous. In one of his treatises, Calvin wrote, there's two things that we want you to know we believe. Two most important things in the life of our Protestant Christianity. Now, if I were writing that, I'd probably have said the first thing is how one is right with God. That's not what he said. How is God rightly to be worshipped? And then, how is one to be right with God? Because he understood from the scriptures. He understood that if you're unwilling to worship according to God's will, that it destroys the gospel. It's not a matter of taste. It's not a matter of of what generation uh, I'm living in. This is a matter, will I... Worship in a way that glorifies God and is for my best, as we had in our meditation. Oh, I worship God as I please. Remember what he says in the second commandment. If you worship God as you please, he'll visit that sin on your children, the third and fourth generation. Not the punishment, the sin. And that's one of the reasons today our churches are in such a desperate plight. Because people determined to worship God as they please, not as he pleased. And now we've added this new offense, and it is an offense. That women lead in worship. And we would expect Christ to bless our churches. Not to give us over to the conclusion of our ways. Oh, dear friends, I want you to understand how serious this is. That you yourselves, if you're here with us, you know we're committed to this and you would be. But we pray for one another. We pray for our sister congregations and Presbyterians and denominations that God, oh, that God would bless his church. Because the opposite of the third and fourth generation is his loving kindness to a thousand generations. This is where revival will come from. Revival will come when, as we read in Psalm 63, when God's people seek him according to his word. May he give us grace to do that for his glory and for our well-being. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.